little thing there. Well, anyway, good afternoon, everybody. This is Kim from Black Free Thinkers. Again, this is Kim from Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Again, we are here to challenge you to live and think for yourself. I hope the sound is coming in better. Um, but it's so much to talk about. Last year was a hell of a damn year for me. I was so happy to see that go. But, you know, some changes are going to be made in my life. I'm already starting to change this. But, you know, putting out some, I don't know, just some new perspectives that I've come across um, over the past several years, but especially the last couple of years, right? And so I'm starting to make some of the changes that I had wanted to make and that I needed to make. You know, it took a little while for me to get to this point, but, you know, the outlook is a lot better than I had anticipated. Right, so today's show is titled New Perspectives, and again, it says it's so much to talk about. I'm not even sure where to start. Please feel free to call in. I'm going to talk about current events, reparations, the cheddar tater tot, and more. I may shed some light on what I have planned for this year. So that was basically, you know, just just a small summary. But if you want to call in, the telephone number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. If you would like to speak with me, press 1, okay? So I'm just letting you guys know how all of that works. So it's been a lot of things happening and so much that I want to cover and talk about, but so little time, right? Because I'm trying to do these shows in less than an hour, but I'm not being very successful at that, so i got to get better at it. And, again, these shows are not scripted, so I I just kind of – riffs off of, you know, different things that, you know, I've studied over the years. Um, Sometimes I give you all references to books, to articles that are out there. Sometimes I post them. But if you go and you look at our Reddit page, go join our Reddit page, I put everything out there plus more because I do a lot of reading throughout the week. And I put it out there. But over the past few weeks, you know, this holiday season was very difficult. It was the first holiday season without my mother, and it was just really, you know, it was painful. And with me, when I'm distressed, it comes out of me physically, right? And I was trying to figure out what in the world was going on with me and why I was feeling the way I was feeling, and I ended up going to the emergency room and, um, you know, getting checked out because it kind of got out of hand. But I believe that, again, it's a part of my mourning, right, part of that particular period, because mourning for my mother doesn't start in January when she passed away, when she transitioned. My mourning starts actually in December because it was in December when she got really sick and the night we had to have her go to the emergency room I really do believe, you know, I don't know even how to put this. I believe that's probably the night that we could have really lost her. But she was a a strong woman, and she pulled through it, and she made sure everything was in order. She sat me down, showed me where things were, um, gave me some truth about some things that, you know, 
you know, parents shield and protect their children, and, you know, we're sheltered, all of that. So I understand why she did it, and but I'm glad that she told me what really happened and how certain events came to pass because it made me understand some of her decisions even better because there were many that I questioned, but as, you know, we talked and she set the record straight, so I have to appreciate that, you know. But, yeah, it's rough. This has been rough. You know, it wasn't only my two aunts and my mom that passed away in the first 35 days. You know, those were the ones that passed away in the first 35 days of last year. But we had other relatives that passed away after that. So it was just an incredibly painful year, you know, painful on a lot of levels. So anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. But, you know, we want to definitely send our thoughts and well wishes to John Conyers. You know, if you all haven't heard, he is battling stage four pancreatic cancer, and I believe it's metastasized, right, So, which means it's spread. So definitely, you know, you want to look into what's happening with him. And, again, there are different tests out there. You know, maybe this year, I don't know for anyone else, but for myself, I'm going to be even more health conscious. And I know my, you know, my doctors would laugh because I am on top of them, And but it's always room to improve, right? So that's what I'm working on as far as me and my health and making sure that I take notes. I take notes on a daily basis on my Google Calendar um, about what I'm dealing with. So when I do go to my doctor and we talk about my state of being health-wise, um, I'm able to tell them what I had been basically going through because before I go to the doctor, like the day before or two days before, I'll sit down and write a summary of everything that's happened for like the last three or four months. And when I go to their office, you know, usually I'll send it, you know, into my chart, but I'll bring a hard copy of it as well. And we go over a few things, but this is my way of letting them know that I'm keeping up with what's happening with me because in order for me to get the best health care that I believe that I can receive, I have to also be proactive in my health care and in my state of condition. So I'm just telling you things that work for me. And another thing, I've talked about this on the show, but I'll go ahead and put it out there again. If you are visiting a doctor and you're asking the doctor to perform certain tests and the doctor refuses, what you do, let me tell you what you do. What you do is ask the doctor to notate in his, you know, um, summary when he puts in notes about the visit, ask him to notate that he refused to run these tests when you requested it. Nine times out of ten, they will come back and they will say, well, you know your body best, and they'll give it to you. Sometimes they will not. I was in a situation where they would not, and this was a while ago, but I wouldn't leave the guy's office until he gave in. But in another, you know, if you if you ask them to notate, the account or the document, you know, your health analysis and their summary, you turn around and send them a note in my chart, also notating that you, you know, um, basically requested that they would do certain tests, the doctor refused, and then you, you know, requested that they make notations in your summary. So that way you have it documented on your end too. Then you go to another doctor, have them run the test, 
and figure it out from there, right? So I'm just telling you that I want you all to be safe. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be an advocate for yourself, you know, and that's just one little tip. And it's 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 difficult, especially with all of the racism and bias in medicine, and especially being a black woman. It's, you know, we're disregarded. We're, you know, they don't believe us half the time when we come in there. I mean, your leg has to be hanging off by one vein in order for them to really assess your medical situation. And it's just it's unbelievable. So anyway, you know, thoughts and, um, yeah, some very, you know, very gentle, kind thoughts to John Conyers and his family. Another thing that happened most recently, Julian Castro jumped out of the race or he dropped out of the race, Right. And I actually like him. I really do like Julian Castro. He was the number two pick for me. So my picks were Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, and Bernie Sanders with a question mark. Julian Julian is gone now. So now we have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie. Those are my two choices at this point. Um, And I find it interesting how the media – is sabotaging those two campaigns, basically not mentioning them, not giving them, you know, an adequate amount of playtime. They're playing up this Buttigieg guy, and I don't like him. And if Bernie or Elizabeth ends up being the nominee and they choose Buttigieg as their vice president, I'm simply not going to vote, period. So I just want to make sure that's clear because anything dealing with Buttigieg, no not going to happen, and I have my reasons, and, you know, things have been revealed about this guy. Go out and do your due diligence and look up why he is not the most suited person for, you know, nomination, right? And I know some of you are like, well, hell, we got Trump. He wasn't suited either. Well, I wasn't happy about that either, but Trump was elected because the media gave him all of that free attention. So they they magnified his, you know, his run. They magnified everything he was doing from the guffaws or the faux pas to just being a total moron, right? So they created that situation. Media has a major role to play in why um, the Cheddar Tater Tot was elected. And now they're elevating Pete Buttigieg, and there's a reason for it. And, again, I'll say this, Buttigieg is nothing but a Republican. But the same thing with Joe Biden. And I've even talked about Obama being a Republican. You know, they're just Republican light. And so I'm not really going to get into that right now, but Julian Castro dropped out. And I was really sad to see that, sad to see that happen. And so now all I see on the television now is the situation with Iran. Now, some of the pundits, grew angry with black Twitter because black Twitter was making all of these little jokes about what happened. Now, we all know that the the cheddar tater tot does not think in a strategic way. He does not think strategically whatsoever. And, again, this is about him coming across as wanting to be a badass, wanting to be, you know, a tough guy, wanting to be, you know, in so many words, a god. Right? You know, the way that he idolizes Kim Jong-un and Putin and and, and, and all of those folks over there, Erdogan, right? 
that is what he wants. And so on this show, especially last year, the last couple of years, because I remember I was talking about this when I came back from Amsterdam, and basically I was talking about the relationship between China and Russia, right? And so it was China and Russia mainly, but Iran is in a relationship with them as well. So Iran was a small factor in, you know, a lot of the transactions that were taking place between those two particular countries because they are now trading directly with each other, including North Korea. So now you have North Korea, you have Iran, you have Russia, and you have China. And that spells for many white people, many of these colonizers, that spells trouble. And so what I find, you know, not funny, ha-ha, but like, I'm more incredulous to it, is when I hear white people specifically talking about the Iranians and talking about how they're, you know, Arabic. They are not Arabs. They do not speak Arabic. You know, they are not Arabs. They do not speak Arabic. They speak Farsi. So let's get that part straight. And number two, if you all haven't heard heard it, you know, today they are pulling completely out. Iran is pulling completely out of that agreement because the European Union was scrambling, trying to find a way to keep Iran a part of that particular agreement, but because of what has transpired with the assassination of, you know, one of their generals, um, you know, they're just pulling out of it. We told you this before you all elected 45. We told you he was dangerous and he's a sociopath. That is exactly what he is. And so don't get upset with black people, particularly black Twitter, because they're pointing out the very obvious. These are things that we told you before he was even the Republican nominee. And the media kept going with it. They kept thinking it was funny. They kept putting it out there. Everybody kept saying that Cheddar Tater's Hot wouldn't win. He won. He won. And at this point in time, I believe he's going to win again, even though I believe, this is my opinion here, that with the assassination of the general and a few other things that, that are, you know, that's happening now, this is all so that he could bolster himself and in his run for, 20, for, you know, 2020 here, right? And so I need you guys to pay attention because, you know, Bill Clinton did the exact same thing. So, you know, again, you know, I want you to know Bill Clinton did the same thing. But what was interesting is in 2011, Donald Trump gave an interview talking about he believed that um, President Obama was going to ratchet up a war, start a war, some type of, you know, engagement to win the 2012 election. And that didn't happen. So now here he is doing it. He's doing everything that he accused Obama of doing, you know, Think about that because it's very important because he's telling on himself. He's telling you what he thinks, how he thinks, you know, what he's implementing right now and what he plans to implement. And, you know, again, Nancy Pelosi, I'm switching on you a little bit, Nancy Pelosi has not released the articles to the Senate yet because of all the controversy with, you know, McConnell saying that, He's strategizing with the White House, and basically he doesn't want any witnesses. Pay attention to that. In addition to that, more information has come out. So I wonder if the House is even willing to impeach him on more articles. 
it's just something to think about, something that, you know, I've been kind of tossing around, you know, trying to figure out, you know, if that's possible, it would be a first. But I believe it is possible that they can impeach him on even more counts. So I'm going to leave that right there. But, um, you know, this whole thing is very concerning. And, you know, again, people out here making jokes, and I get it, because some of this is like you created this situation. You created this situation. This guy on um, Twitter by the name of Colin Kaepernick, you may have heard of him, but it's interesting. He released a tweet, and he says, America has always sanctioned and besieged black and brown bodies both at home and abroad. American militarism is the weapon wielded by American imperialism to enforce its policing and plundering of the non-white world. That is absolutely correct. And colonizers, whether they're from America or any other aspect or any other country from Western Europe, they have no problem going into these different countries and just basically taking what they want and, you know, any resources that that country may have. That includes black and brown bodies, right? And um, I just want you guys start questioning things, start questioning things, you know, question why um, the Cheddar Tater Tot may have chosen to strike Iran at this time. Some people are saying because of the protests that were happening in front of the American embassy, you know, and that that could be a part of it because he, again, wants to come across as a strong man. But what I want you to go and look up, Iran discovered 53 billion barrels of oil. Now, this was reported in November of last year, so November of 2019. So they discovered 53 billion barrels of oil underground. So keep that in mind as well, right? And and what was interesting was after they assassinated the guy, oil prices, the oil stocks went up. Well, what do you expect? You know, they're going to make money. This is making people very, very wealthy, which is why when we talk about war or any of these skirmishes, you know, we have to talk about the people that are making money from that particular situation. So I definitely want you all to keep that in mind, right? And so, you know, they were trying to get into the Cheddar Tater Tot's head. And, you know, they talk about, oh, he was angry with Hollywood because they wouldn't accept him. He was angry with American elites because they wouldn't accept him. And to be honest with you, I just think he's angry at America. He's angry with everybody in this country because he feels as though he has not gotten the recognition or the celebrity that he wanted and or deserved. Again, this goes back to that white male privilege. When we talk about white male privilege in the dictionary, it should show Donald Trump's face. In the the encyclopedia, it should be 45's picture right there, smiling. And also pictures of folks like Pompeo, Pence, and all of them who are sitting there and looking at him with adoration because they can't believe he's getting away with all of this bullshit the pathological, you know, lying and all, come on now. He's getting away with it. No one else would be able to get away with this. And he is giving America the middle finger, 
and he doesn't give a damn. But he's not unique. You know, the majority of these white business people, male and, you know, woman, men and women, they've accumulated a lot of their wealth from doing harm and inflicting violence on, you know, everybody else, but especially black and brown bodies. And I can't leave Native Americans out of this because, again, you know, there are some things happening over there that you all need to pay attention to, how, again, they're being pushed off their land and the squalor and desolation that they're living in. You know, go to one of those Indian reservations. You don't even have to go and visit one. Google it. You know, there are documentaries out there that you can find, that you can watch to find out what's happening over there. So anyway, so, those, you know, that was basically Trump's feelings in a pinch, you know, just to, <laughs> to tell you where I think he is. And so right now, you know, he's a little uncertain about his reelection. And, you know, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, or maybe I should go on and hit on this now. Yeah, let's do it. So what's happening is the white evangelicals are starting to distance themselves from him. Not all of them, but enough of them to make a difference and for him to be concerned. And basically what it all boils down to is that they've gotten what they want. The, the courts are stacked. And the courts are stacked in for in their in their benefit or for their benefit for at least the next two generations. And so there are gonna be some changes made. Right now they're already questioning Roe versus Wade and, and questioning whether we can have it reversed or not. And there was a video out there, I I know I didn't post it, but I think I may have retweeted it and it shows Paula White and and some other white evangelicals praying over the, you know, the cheddar tater tot, right? And it's just sickening. It really is. So pay attention. Look that up. But they're starting to distance themselves. Now, a couple of polls came out that shows that he's in a dead heat with many of the Democratic, you know, um, runners or people, Democratic politicians that are running for the nomination, and, again, you know, even he stated, and he was correct last year, that you can't necessarily go by those polls. Now, one thing that I do want you all to get from the election of the Cheddar Tater Tot and what happened and how he totally decimated Nate Silver's, you know, over there on 538 and those predictions is because they found a different way to run. They found a different way to win, which was the Electoral College which means, you know, he didn't receive the majority of the popular vote, but they found another way around it. I don't know what the Democrats are doing, but this guy here is extremely unpredictable. Um, you know, some of the people that are working for him, you know, I dare I say they are Machiavellian, and they know exactly what they're doing. They know what they're going to achieve. It was everybody else that was caught off guard. And I know Raina and I, we definitely kept telling you guys to, you know, to be wary, to be cautious, because this could happen. And many people didn't believe it, but we saw it coming. I went to bed before they even really started counting, you know, the votes. 
because I already knew what was going to happen, and we called it three weeks, two, three weeks before it happened. We pretty much coronated him that day. And, you know, some of you all thought we had lost our minds, but we were right. And so, you know, things are about to get really interesting, um, very interesting. And, you know, I kind of want to talk about dark money, but, you know, we'll save that for another day in time. So, you know, so again, so I wanted to talk about reparations, but before I can even really get into any talks about reparations, we have to talk about the black church and the black community. And the reason why I have to combine them or aggregate them together is because the majority of the black community considers themselves as Christians. And so the way that black Americans practice Christianity is a, it's a westernized version of Christianity, which is nothing but, again, a pyramid Ponzi scheme, you know, um, hyper-capitalism especially when you're looking or talking about the ones that follow, again, prosperity gospel, the word of faith, the ones that were following behind Oral Roberts and, and Billy Graham and Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar and, and Eddie Long and all of them, and, and also Paula White. She's a part of that as well. She was introduced to the black community through T.D. Jakes, who was also a part of that word of faith crew, Right. So all of this is kind of tied together, and I'm not sure where I want to start with that. I'm going to push that back a little bit because I need to talk about white Christianity and how white Christianity is um, basically played out in this country, how white Christianity is followed, how, how faith in white Christianity, how their faith is shaped much differently than the faith that shapes the black Christian community in this country. White Christianity is and has always been white identity politics. And I've been talking about this, and I'm going to keep talking about this until I'm blue in the face because, again, you need to understand this. White Christianity is and has always been white identity politics. And I need for black Christians to start opening their eyes and just accepting the fact that you all are not practicing the same type of Christianity that white people are. It's not the same. It's definitely not the same. And once black Christians start to accept that and to admit it, we will be able to move forward in fighting for black liberation, fighting for reparations, because the black church, and I hate to say this, but it's true, and I dance around it, but, you know, this year I decided it's going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to tell it all. Fuck it. I have absolutely nothing to use. But the black Christian church has and is one of the obstacles in our way, being able to move forward in attaining reparations and liberation. And reparations is a part of liberation, so I'm going to state that because from this point forward, I'm just going to say black liberation. 
And there are many factors or, or many headlines under that, right, or many points under that. So I need for you to understand that, but I, I, I had to um, explain that first. But, yes, we, the black community, because whether we are Christian, whether we're Muslim, whether we're Buddhist, you know, whether we're atheist, whether we're humanist, what have you, we are part of the black community. Even though there are some of you that do not enjoy being black, don't want to be black, doing everything you you can to be anti-black, even when dealing with other black people, but that's another story. But the black community is complicit with white supremacy. And so I've been talking about we need to have this conversation. Let's start it out now. And that's not to say that other people are not having this conversation. Yes, they are. Yes, they have. You know, you can go all the way back to the 60s and and look up black liberation theology and where that came from, how it came about. You know, look up the UU Church, Universal Unitarianism. You know, even do some research into MCC churches as well. You know, this has been around, and MCC is a little bit different, but, you know, it's an affirming um, denomination, but that's neither here nor there. But I want you all to go and do some research on your own. You know how I feel about this. I always encourage you all to go take a take a dip down a rabbit hole. But, yeah, we need black Christians to start, to, to start accepting the fact and admitting the fact that white Christianity has totally different goals than black Christianity. And one of the goals of white Christianity is to subjugate and control the black community. Period. And, you know, this has been demonstrated in a number of ways. And so this is where the tricky part comes in, right? And one of the reasons why we see so much Islamophobia coming from white people in general, especially these colonizers from Western Europe and America, the reason why is because with Islam, it's a black and brown religion, they have yet to figure out how to control or subjugate, right? And with Christianity, Christians are taught forgiveness, which is why you see them breaking their damn necks to get to the microphone to to say that they've forgiven, you know, whatever white person that may have committed some type of atrocity. Oh, well, hold on. I need to give a side note. There was an attack at a home. It was some Jewish people that were killed, and they were attacked by this black man. And in this case, this, that black man has, a, you know, he has a history of mental illness. And so I want to make sure that that's understood because whenever you have one of these white supremacists, white nationalists, alt-right, you know, anti-Semitic guys, they always try to point at mental illness. In this case, it truly is mental illness. You know, there was even a Jewish psychologist that went out and dug up some some um, information and gave that assessment. He said the guy was a paranoid schizophrenic. So I just wanted to say that to say this. I meant to say that at the beginning when I was talking about the other things. But anyway, going back to, you know, the Islamophobia in this country, Christians and Christianity, they teach forgiveness. 
with Islam and Muslims, they teach justice. Big difference. There is a big difference between forgiveness and justice. And so I'm going to get into that a little bit later. Um, But, you know, there are a number of things that I want to kind of go over today. And I think I'm going to try to make this quick. Now, hmm, I'll say this. You have some white people out here who feel that basically they are being discriminated against, that now they're the ones that are receiving reverse racism or, you know, being put down, being victimized, if you will. But, again, you know, I've I've had people call into the show, and they talk about, oh, well, you know, you're just upset because someone doesn't like you or, you know, you didn't get a promotion, you probably didn't qualify. So just bullshit, right? And so that's the difference between white people and black people as far as, like, being a collective. White people are allowed to be individuals, whereas black people, we are basically a collective. That is how we are dealt with. We're dealt with collectively. And so when we attempt to deal with white people collectively, that's when you start getting into them personalizing every damn word that comes out of your mouth and trying to explain institutionalized racism. It feels like pulling your hair out of your head. Now, if you all go back to the last show that I did, which was, I believe it was November 13th, And I talked about specifically about why I do not like going to speak to these conferences or conventions with a predominantly white audience. And I have my reasons, right? You know, and I talked about some of the organizers and some of the behavior and, and, you know, they, they call it being hospitable. I call it being controlling and nosy. But that's just me. And so when you talk to white people or you attempt to talk to them, you know, sometimes it feels like you're just going full speed ahead into a damn brick wall because they're not listening. And so when you try to talk to them about living every single day with institutionalized racism and then having to turn around and argue that institutional racism even exists, it's infuriating, right? And so... You know, then all of a sudden you're called angry. And see, and they call you angry to shut the conversation down, to attempt to deconstruct or dismantle your argument. Because normally when you're considered or deemed the angry black person, then nobody wants to talk. But you didn't want to talk in the first place. You wanted to lecture. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's like, again, infuriating. And then, and then when that's not working, then they start tone policing you. And there we go again with being angry. And especially by the white people who think that they have all of the answers, which is why I give the side eye to these so-called allies. As long as they can control you and you don't give a lot of pushback on them, 
when they spout racist bullshit, you know, you're, you're okay. And you're the token. They're willing to give you some breadcrumbs as long as you go along with the program. And that's why I laugh at some people when they hold up this unity banner. And basically that unity banner, what that means is shut up and follow the white people. And you're trying so hard to be accepted and validated by people who only see you as basically a prop. So they can say that they know black and brown people and they have black and brown people that come to their shit, that do what they do, and then once the photos are taken, then you go on by the wayside. They entertain you in a, in, as long as they feel like it and to achieve whatever it is they want to achieve. And what's interesting is even when you're trying to have a conversation with them, you know, you suggest books, articles, they absolutely refuse to read it. Why? Because they have the answers. They feel that they have the answers, and some of them feel like they have the right to lecture black people about being racist. They get, they have the right to define it. And then also lecture black people about being racist. So at this point, they're telling black people, no, you're the one that's racist. And that's why I say you have to be careful with that. Because what many of them are doing is they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm poor and white. So I understand, you know, what it's like to be Native American or black or Latinx or what have you. No, you do not. That in and of itself is a false equivalency. And once you raise that point and you tell them that, then it turns into they refuse to absolutely listen to anything and then have this condescending, racist, how dare you attitude. How dare you tell me that that statement was racist? How dare you not allow me to make my experience comparable to those of black people, those Native Americans, those Latinx folks? It's not the same. Are you oppressed because of your white skin? No. It's about class. And so it's interesting on how they're trying to formulate these arguments. And so, yeah, and I'm talking about something that happened to me most recently. Someone pulled a Miss Millie on me, right? And we'll talk about that. But just because you grew up white and poor, it's not the same as being black, brown, or Native American. Because studies have come out that white people would be would rather be white and poor than wealthy and black. I need you to think about that. And so the ones that want to call me angry, I'm fine with that. Um, Greta called me an angry sock puppet. I thought that was the funniest shit ever. That's why I put it on my profile page on Facebook. So anyway, angry black people have learned that there is really no calm way to have a successful discussion about race with black people because the entire discussion about race centers around the protection of white people and their white feelings. Every time, 
So this is what we are talking about when we talk about white tears. And the weaponization of white tears is one of the biggest obstacles to having a serious conversation about race in this country. And so, again, white people are afforded the ability to be an individual, whereas people of color, namely black people, are forced to think collectively and to a certain extent forced to act collectively. And arguing about personal, about about them being them being white people, you know, they want to argue that they are not racist and and basically talking around the issue and totally missing the the, the gist of the conversation, right? And so at that time they are too busy personalizing the issue of race and defending that they defending themselves, stating that they are the good white people and, and that they do not have racist beliefs as flawed as many of those beliefs are. And what happens is this sets up the ability for them to say that racism doesn't exist because they suffered too. You know, there's an article out there talking about how to explain white privilege to poor white people. And so what's interesting is um, a few days ago, Hari Zayad put out a tweet and here it says here, I'm going to quote him, Happy New Year. I'm a day late, but I really hope that we leave microaggression, implicit bias, fragility, and all the other terms that ultimately reinforce the innocence of oppressors in spite of their violence against the oppressed in the last decade. Please. And I agree with him. And I agree with that. Because, again, you know, I'm not going to allow you to make those types of arguments. And, again, it's better that I correct you in private than to have someone um, that's black, brown, red, yellow, you know, take offense and correct you publicly. Because you're not going to do well with that either. So you will not be able to say, my black friend Kim agrees, no, the fuck I don't. I will not allow you to say that I agree with your fuckery. And so, um, yeah, so there are some terms that definitely need to be stricken from the book, right? We need to take this out of our vocabulary because what it does is that it creates even more padding, even more protection of white people by putting it in such a way that, again, centers their feelings, right? So microaggression. Ain't nothing small about that. Aggression is just fucking aggression. And speaking of aggression and microaggression, I posted on my Facebook, um, I took a screenshot, and basically and I retweeted it. And it was this one person, Jackie Aina. I know I'm killing it, but sorry about that, but Naira Banks. And so she says, welcome to corporate America where confronting microaggressions make you the aggressor and is the start of the paper trail that will cause you to mysteriously lose your job or keep you from advancing. Not just corporate America. That happens in academia too. Hell, that happens in nonprofit organizations. Let's not get it twisted. You know, and, again, that's where it comes to when we're talking about structural racism. And and this is one of the ways that they're able to do it. And with this particular tweet, there was a black woman who went to work 
with her hair natural, and they had never seen her hair in its natural state. And what the white people are doing, they're touching it and asking all kinds of questions. And, you know, she's standing there and allowing them to touch her hair and basically treat her like a damn zoo animal. You know, that's what, you know, pissed me off and pissed off a lot of other folks. And for those of you that don't know or may have forgotten, they used to have black people as part of the carnival in zoo. So this is not far-fetched. This has been known to happen. And so, you know, it's important that, you know, we talk about this because people are being hurt and killed because instead of talking about structural racism, white people are too busy trying to protect their good white person status. And again, white people are allowed to be individuals. They don't care that they're helping to support and sustain a racist system because they want to shield and protect their personal good white values, their personal good white name. And see, and this is one of the areas where Bernie Sanders and many other whites get in trouble, but especially Bernie Sanders because he is, you know, he's out front and he's the representative. He's too busy personalizing when personalizing the situation when black, brown, red, yellow people talk about racism. So he he can't, you know, he's like, I've been on the front lines. I marched with King. I was arrested. Yeah, we know about all of that. But he's too busy trying to show us that he is a good white person, and that's what makes it hard to get legislation um, passed and some repealed because of Bernie, people like Bernie Sanders who are personalizing it and saying, well, wait a minute, I, I'm not racist, and I know Mitch McConnell, and, 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 and I know these other folks, and they're not racist. I haven't heard them say a racist thing. You're personalizing it. We're talking about structural racism, and this is what gets them in trouble, and this is why Bernie is always tripping over his, his answers. Because, again, they're, they're busy holding on to and, defend, and defending their individual good whiteness. It's a defense mechanism. And this allows them to be blinded and, and blinded to the fact that they are being complicit for allowing the system to continue to exist and grow because we don't know what's in another person's heart, right? Yet again, the discussion about structural racism falls by the wayside. And this is violence. It's violence. I know some people are like, Kim, how are you coming up with that? Look up the word violence. Not being able to afford daycare so you can send your child to daycare. That's violence. Especially when you're working 40 to 60 hours a week, you and your partner. And you can barely afford a one-bedroom apartment. Poverty is violence. And there are a number of things that are considered violent. And I've talked about this, and we'll talk about it again. But, again, as I stated, I had a Miss Millie moment. And if you all don't remember who Miss Millie was, that was the character from The Color Purple. And basically she was a condescending racist white woman who considered herself a friend or, a, you know, a champion or a victor 
of the black community. Now, there are many different Miss Millies out there, and so it's not just necessarily the black community, but the brown community, the red community, the yellow community, what have you. And what happens is when Sophia rejected Miss Millie's invitation to be her maid, Sophia ends up being beaten and jailed, so she paid the price and was forced to subjugate herself to Miss Millie's whims. She still ended up Miss Millie's housekeeper or maid. Yeah, I won't be having any of that shit. Another false equivalency is the both sides bullshit people put out there. And so with the situation that I dealt with, basically um, this was a so-called ally. And, you know, we've had disagreements before, and I've corrected them before, and it was never an issue. But this time, apparently it was different because I made clear being poor and white is not the same as being Native American or black. And their response was, well, if you go to your bathroom and you flush the toilet, does, you know, does the toilet flush and does the water run and all of these different examples? And, I'm, and I said yes. And they're like, well, you know, they have problems with that where they're living. And so what was interesting about that is I don't believe that that was the source of those particular white tears. If I'm going to be honest about the situation, the source of those white tears was the fact that I told them no, I was not interested in moving there, and I told them no, I was not interested in them coming up for a few days or a week to take care of me when I have my heart surgery. So, yeah, I'm having heart surgery. And so um, we haven't scheduled it yet, but it's, it's coming. And that's what they were angry about. Now, if you're living somewhere where there is, you know, the water isn't, you know, working properly, the toilet doesn't work, the tap water doesn't work the way that it should, why would you want to invite somebody, a sick person, to that type of environment? And the thing is, is that over the years, I've had different situations with different people, and I always say to myself, Kim, how the fuck did this happen? And so having some talks with some friends, you know, they shared with me about how I build these codependent relationships with people. And 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 with this particular case, again, it wasn't about me not allowing them to make the argument that they themselves have been oppressed in the same way as Native Americans and black people. It was about the fact that they couldn't get me to do what they wanted me to do. And this is someone that I've known for years, right? And the only reason why I'm coming public and talking about this story is because, you know, after they screamed at me and hung up on me, they started sending me text messages, and the text messages were, I, I'm getting ready to go out to a Klan meeting and because I'm so racist and because, you know, I'm, I'm the same as the maggots and all of that. Now, mind you, I never called this individual racist. We all know that I believe that all white people are racist. But the same thing, you know, uh, yeah, all white people are racist. 
You have to work to deprogram yourself and unlearn that shit. And it's not just white people. Black people are unlearning this shit too. But the burden, the, 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 the bulk of the burden lies with white people. So anyway, they're texting me about going to the Klan meeting, and I'm sitting here looking at the text messages, and I'm like, well, how do you know where the, the Klan meeting is? Makes me wonder if you've been going to them all along. And in addition to that town being poor, you know, you were talking about how racist the police department was. Why the fuck would I want to move there? And to be honest with you, I'm start, you know, All right, so why the hell would I want to move there? So then they started basically stating that they were going to basically commit suicide. So they were like rope or gun. And they said rope or gun so many times in these text messages that I had to ask them if that was a threat. Because I don't believe the rope or gun was for them. I believe the rope or gun was for me. And considering that their family lives less than an hour away from me makes it even more concerning. So that's the only reason why I'm saying anything about this in public, so that if anything happens to me, you all will know. And I've, you know, printed up some information and, I'm going to be sending some stuff to a few people, and, you know, I've had people say, well, Kim, you need to contact the authorities. But even at night when they were saying gun or, you know, rope rope or gun, that was the order, I had turned around and I called them because I wasn't sure if it was a credible suicide threat. But I also wanted to know, are you talking to me? And it got to the point that I took it as a threat against my life. That is the only reason why I'm saying anything about this publicly. Because what happens is with white people in general, they want to say, well, you need to act in a civil and professional way. You got some black people saying that too. But, you know, civility and so-called professionalism, and let's not forget, you know, respectability politics, that shit ain't going to save us. And it's bullshit, you know, civility politics. Basically, they don't want you saying anything about their shit and what they've done. They want you to keep it quiet so that, you know, so that they will not have to answer questions. But, no, I'm putting it out there. I'm putting it out there because fuck that. I'm not going to allow you to do that. And then, again, you know, this was, you know, master manipulation. Because I believe what they anticipated was me to call them several times and try to talk and to make it better. And the only thing that would have made that situation any better was for me to give in and come down there because you want a new toy to play with. That's not going to happen. Now, I've had, you know, over the time period that I've known this particular individual, I've had four different situations in which, you know, I find out that I'm in a relationship. You know, a whole relationship is happening, and I don't know anything about it until they're breaking up with me. 
And it's really interesting because these are people that I, many of them, I haven't even fucking met you. And if I did meet you, I made myself quite clear that I'm not looking for any type of romantic relationship. And that's what this boils down to. You're not used to people telling you no. And so I just hate that it came to that. So anyway, like I said, respectability politics, civility, professionalism, that's not going to save us. It hurts us. It's never worked, and it never will. We are taught to be docile. And what's interesting is I need for you all to go back and take a look because, again, I'm talking about the black community in general, which, you know, includes Christians, Muslims, atheists, humanists, free thinkers, all of them folks. Because what's happening is, you know, for several, I mean, and this, this didn't just start with the cheddar tater tots. This has been going on for a while, but the white evangelicals are stressing even more about wanting us to stop assessing and viewing our state of being through critical race theory. And there's a reason for that, because viewing these things as intersectional and showing what we have in common and looking at this through a critical race theory lens is it forces them to answer questions that they don't want to answer. It forces them to see things in a manner that they don't want to see them, but it also you know, allows us to build coalitions together and to work together, which is another thing that they do not want. One of the main reasons why Martin Luther King was assassinated was because more white people were starting to follow him even more with the Poor People's Campaign. And, you know, and, and William Barber is doing a remarkable job talking about the Poor People's Campaign and reviving it and, and explaining this and building a movement and a coalition of people around this. But, you know, again, um, there are reasons for this because, again, white Christianity always has been and always will be white identity politics. It will, you know, white Christianity is basically trying to figure out how to put this. Um, You know, the overall umbrella of it is steeped in racism. It's just dripping and oozing off of it. And so there are a few articles that I definitely want you guys to go out and get. There's an article, the title is, Church Makes Me Sick, How Black Christians Are Stalling Black Liberation. Again, Church Makes Me Sick, How Black Christians Are Stalling Black Liberation, and you can find this on the Black Youth Project website, right? Or you can just go to Google, put that title in, and and it'll come up. And so some of the sub, you know, titles that they have here, they're talking about respectability, politics, children, faith, abuse, and mental illness, right? So when they talk about respectability politics, Basically, you know, they're talking about forgiveness and trying to present ourselves in such a way that white people will respect us or they will leave us alone, that we have to look a certain way, act a certain way, 
speak a certain way, you know, and then and, and turning around and talk, telling, you know, black men, if you pull your pants up, white people will respect you. That's not true. They don't respect you and you're the pastor. You know? I know a whole bunch of people that dress quite well. They don't tell you it's 12 people living in a damn two-bedroom apartment. That's why they can afford those clothes and that BMW. But that's a whole different story. But, um, you know, while trying to kowtow and, you know, and shuck and jive, you know, with this respectability politics cape, we're being killed. Our wealth is being stolen. 70% of black and brown wealth was stolen with this last mortgage crisis in 2007 and 2008. And the only people that were really held responsible for that were the, the black and brown people that lost their property, talking about you should know how to read a contract. You did it to yourself, you know, and just just all kinds of condescending bullshit that goes along with that. You know, and we won't even talk about what's happening to black girls and women, how they are being incarcerated at the same rates as black men and boys. And the abuse that they're taking even in their own fucking community. And again, it goes back to that black patriarchal system and you know, and that the that the church upholds. And that patriarchy patriarchy in and of itself is a white supremacist tool. So anyway, um, you know, the other headline, children, and basically it says we do not treat them well, you know, and I've heard that all my life children are to be seen and not heard, which takes their autonomy away from them, which takes a lot of their creativity away because they are, some of them are beaten to until they conform. And this is what I worry about with these children. This is why some of these children are considered throwaway children and why you have people coming into our communities and taking advantage of these children, not only people in the church, but people throughout the community and people that come into the community specifically to target black and brown children. We are not protecting them. You know, and then also, you know, they are taught to never question any anything about what they're being taught. Not only not question God and the Bible and the pastor and, and the parishioners of that church, but not even to question their parents when their parents make bad decisions, you know. And there's a way to do that respectfully. But if you're telling them not to question anything and only speak when, when, when they're spoken to, this is how a lot of abuse is covered up. And then, again, it's another form of oppression. And, again, indoctrination and all of that. So I just want you to think about that. So their next subtitle is Faith. And basically... In this article, it talks about how black folks' liberation are tied to faith, right? And see, the thing is, is that many of you have faith, in my opinion, in the wrong thing. And the way you exercise it, which is the way that you've been taught, 
is counterproductive to yourself as well as others, and that's what makes it dangerous, you know. And and again, with the games that have been played with us, as far as the black community is concerned, and how white Christianity was taught, westernized white Christianity was taught to black people from slavery even up till now, is basically that your faith will get you through whatever it is you're going through. You know, and that it's your fault, and here the example is, it is your fault that you are in change. Just pray harder and believe more, then you will be free. The same thing, you know, is being said to them when, let's say, they, they lost their job and they're not able to pay their bills. Oh, it's your fault that you're poor. You're not being a good steward over the money that God has given you. Again, God gets off the hook. Your pastor gets off the hook. You know, I've seen parents play the same game with their children and other people. You know, people playing this with people, period. And so in this article here, it says that message is flat out dangerous and will not, and hold on, and will not, oh, the child, all right. So basically, the message is flat out dangerous and will not help with the liberation of people being caged, all right? The next one is abuse. And that's the reason why I told you all about my Miss Millie situation, because that was abuse. That was very abusive on their end. So anyway, in this article, it talks about us not taking a hard enough stance against physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. And then it gave the scripture, all things work together for the good of them who love the Lord. And basically, the victims are told that they should understand their abuser and the abuse that happened to them. Why? Because God wouldn't give them more than they could handle, right? And this is why these crimes and atrocities against not only children, but women and men in the community as well as in the church, why it continues to happen. And why there are some pastors out here that are telling you not to read the Internet, not to go on the Internet for anything. And, and don't believe those stories. It's nothing but vicious gossip. No. And then if you turn around and you press charges, then you become the, the the next object of the sermon or you're ostracized or you're shunned or you're basically driven from, you know, the church or that particular community. And it happens often. And so, you know, in this article it talks about how black people shun counseling and therapy and says that it's something for the faithless or weak-minded, and that's not true. You know, um, there's one pastor in Chicago, John Hanna, and another word of faith, prosperity gospel, but what I will say is that he does encourage his congregants to go and get mental health care if that's what they need. And I'm seeing that with more ministries throughout the country. And going to get help, it does not make you weak-minded. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you faithless. Stop that. Those are Jedi mind tricks. People are playing with you. 
because at the end of the day, you still have to deal with whatever trauma that you experienced, and you have to be able to make it through this life. So sometimes a little counseling, and in some cases some medication, it goes a long way, which ties into this last category. They're talking about mental illness, and and you can't ignore it, and you can't pray it away. You know, they say that here. And, you know, it, it talks about the church has literally made black people sick or added to their sickness or illness. And, you know, talks about how shunning, counseling, and therapy is not only gas a gaslighting tool, but it also keeps people in need away from helpful resources and forces them to rely solely on the church for their healing. And so that's where it's, you know, very extremely dangerous because, number one, most, well, I'm just going to say the majority of these pastors cannot help you. They are not professionals. They are not subject matter experts. They have not been trained. Only thing they've been trained to do is to increase their numbers, and that means membership as well as the, the, the basket, the money. You've got to be careful. You got to be careful because you know again the black church, as it says here, the black church is failing the black community, and rectifying our faith and actions is a start. That's that's what they're what they wrote here, and I want you to go and you read that, read that article. But when it comes down to mental illness, you know mental illness and going to get the counseling and things that you need. Now there is a lot of racism in psychotherapy. I'm not arguing that point, but what I'm saying is is that, you know, first of all, it's hard to find a good therapist, especially a good black therapist, but you have different support groups that are out there and and people that you can talk to. You have, uh, what's that thing called? Pal Talk? No, that's not. I think that's it. Anyway, you have online resources now, you know, and just find out, call your insurance company and find out. Um, what's covered under your plan. But, again, you know, it's important that you guys go back and read this. Um, You know, and earlier I was talking about the 1960s and black liberation theology really started taking off at that point. Now, there's this article at Acton University, not University, Acton Institute. The title of the article is The Marxist Roots of Black Liberation Theology. And it's written by Anthony Bradley. And again, the Marxist roots of black liberation theology. And this was written April 2nd, 2008. And the author is Anthony B. Bradley's PhD. And so he explains what black liberation is. And the reason why this article came about was because when Barack Obama was running for president, his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, who was the pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ, um, basically was castigated in the media and just turned into, you know, a fiasco. And so basically it says here, a clear definition of black theology was first given formulation in 1969 by the National Committee of Black Church Men in the midst of the civil rights movement. Now, I think this is important because, you know, again, we talk about the civil rights movement, The civil rights movement in and of itself was a secular movement. 
which is why you were able to have people like A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin and all of them playing a part in that movement and being strategic and extremely important in what took place, right? And so, um, you know, black theology, black liberation theology or black theology is a theology of black liberation. You got to go back. You have to read this. So right here it says, in the 1960s, black churches began to focus their attention beyond helping blacks cope with national racial discrimination, particularly in urban areas. The notion of blackness is not merely a reference to skin color, but rather is a symbol of oppression that can be applied to all persons of color who have a history of oppression, except the whites, of course. So in this sense, as Wright notes, Jesus was a poor black man because he lived in oppression at the hands of quote-unquote rich white people. The overall emphasis of black liberation theology is the black struggle for liberation from various forms of white racism and oppression, right? And so basically, you know, we're going to have to go back and revisit quite a bit of this to get a better understanding because I hear people, I see them writing, you know, we are not our parents' generation and and we're not going to take this and all of these things, you know, and, you know, I'm guilty of saying that too, and I've made my amends, I've apologized for that because our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, they took the hits. They were beaten they were, you know, verbally, physically, mentally, emotionally abused, not only by white people but from black people as well. And especially when you have children having children. And what I mean by that is when you have young folks that have children, there are a lot of things that they do not know. And, and you know, this has to be approached delicately because, you know, I want to make sure that my point is understood. Things are different now than they were then. You had entire communities, or as they say, villages, that were around and helped to look out for the benefit of the children in that community. And you don't have as much of that now. And there are varying reasons as to why that is. But at the end of the day, we still need to find a way to move forward and to basically at this point hold white people, especially these white politicians, to account. Now, one example I'm going to give you is Doug Jones from Alabama, and I skipped all over that when I was talking earlier, but Alabama, Doug Jones from Alabama, how black women went out in droves to get him elected. And once he was elected, he said that he would vote some with the Republicans because, you know, he agreed with some of their platform or, you know, their beliefs or ideology. And so, you know, that was already a slap in the face. But now he's saying that he may not vote for impeachment. And now he has, you know, contenders running against him in Alabama And, of course, he wants to keep his seat, and so now he's saying that he may not vote for impeachment. Yet again, 
another slap in the face to black women and black voters. And we have to hold these politicians accountable and start forcing their hand regarding structural racism and and, and the systems of oppression that are in this country. You know, and one of the reasons, again, why I'm focusing on black black liberation theology is because some of the radical or so-called radical um, thought processes that came from the black liberation theology as, as also the black radicals, the, the black Marxists and, and the black communists and the black conscious community, at one point many of their thought processes and, 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 and ide- ideas were considered radical, but they're not considered radical anymore. The Black Panther Party started the breakfast program, and I saw an article the other day. They're still serving breakfast to the children in Oakland, California, 50 years later. It was like the 50th anniversary of that. And now you have schools that offer breakfast, free breakfast to children. So, again, you'll have these people coming at you and saying that your thoughts and your ideas are Marxist or communist or socialist, and it's just wrong and it's radical and this country isn't ready for this. Yes, it is. Even with the New Deal, with FDR and the New Deal, Social Security, um, you know, unemployment, all of those things, you know, uh, VA loans, um, you know, mortgages and loans to get homes, right? All of that was once considered radical. Now it's more commonplace. So I don't want you to shy away. I don't want you to be afraid if they call you those names. They were calling you names anyway. Doesn't matter. But read that article. Um, you know, right here is talking about James Cone, and he's talking about American white theology. So it says here, American white theology, which Cone never clearly defines, is charged with having failed to help blacks in the struggle for liberation. Black theology exists because white religionists fail to relate the gospel of Jesus to the pain of being black in a white racist society. For black theologians, since white Americans do not have the ability to recognize the humanity in persons of color, blacks need their own theology to affirm their identity in terms of a reality that is anti-black. Blackness stands for all victims of white oppression. White theology, when formed in isolation from the black experience, becomes a theology of white oppressors serving as divine sanction from criminal acts committed against blacks. And so go out and read this, um, you know, right here. It says, Cone argues that even those white theologians who try to connect theology to black suffering rarely utter a word that is relevant to the black experience in America. White theology is not Christian theology at all. There is but one guiding principle of black theology, an unqualified commitment to the black community as that community seeks to define its existence in the light of God's liberating work in the world. Now, you know, uh, I got some pushback for that, but that's not what we're here for today. I'm going to read another, um, continue to read from this. And it says here, as such, black theology is a survival 
theology because it helps blacks navigate white dominance in American culture. In Cone's views, whites considers blacks animals outside of the realm of humanity and attempted to destroy black identity through racial assimilation and integration programs, as if blacks have no legitimate existence apart from whiteness. Black theology is the theological expression of a people deprived of social and political power. God is not the God of white religion, but the God of black existence. In Cone's understanding, truth is not objective but subjective, a personal experience of the ultimate in the midst of degradation. And so, you know, I know there's some pushback on that as well, but I'm just kind of putting this out here because I know I have a variety of different people listening to this show. And so it's important that um, you understand what's happening, you know, here and how to apply this to your arguments, how to understand how we came to this, to where we are right now and what we need to do to get out of this. Because, again, I've talked about, you know, especially within the atheist community, atheist, free thought, humanist, skeptic, non-believing communities that are out here and how there are specific people that are basically, again, being used by white, you know, oppressors, colonizers there, being used to go into the black community to divide and conquer, going into the black community to to create weak spots or, if you will, or attempting to break the chain so that they can come into the community and continue on with, you know, with the pillaging of, you know, our whatever little wealth that we still have, of our dignity, of all of these things. And, you know, again, you've heard me go off about that American atheist billboard about slaves obey your slave masters. Oh, yeah. Hey, Dave, see you got a new gig. That was quick, right? Mm. So anyway, um, you know, basically just, just go out and do some reading. Do some reading about that. It's important that you get out here and you get a better understanding and know what people are basically throwing at you because I know you're hearing and reading and seeing a lot of things that are taking place. And it's important that um, that you just understand, you know, and get a better understanding. You know, I had some people commenting about, again, I've, I've talked about this before, about how they watched the documentary, the 13th or 13th, from Ava DuVernay and how they had a better understanding of it and could keep up with it better because of what they learned from this show. So that's all I'm trying to do. I'm I'm trying to empower you as well as embolden you to be able to go out here and speak your truth. And sometimes your truth is going to conflict with mine, and you know what? That's okay. I'm all right with that. I actually encourage that. So anyway, to say that, to say this, there's another article that I want you guys to go out, and you can find this at a religion online, right? So the title of the article is Practicing Liberation in the Black Church. Again, Practicing Liberation in the Black Church. This was written by James Henry Harris. Again, that's James Henry Harris, and he's a pastor of a church over in Norfolk, Virginia. And I'm looking for the date on this. Uh, okay, so this is in 1990, somewhere around 1990. 
And, you know, this is actually, you know, take what you need from these articles because you're not going to agree with everything, especially for those that are, you know, agnostic, atheists, nonbelievers, you know, humanists, free thinkers, whatever. And that's okay. I'm okay with that, you know. But the thing is, is that, you know, again, I'm trying to get you to expand your mind and start looking at these things um, in a more collective way. Individuality is a great thing, but we have to think collectively because we've been forced into that box. We do not have the privilege to be individuals. That has not been afforded to us, you know, in general, overall. So anyway, you know, it's talking here um, in this article about, you know, theology, academic theology, um, what black people expect from their preachers, you know, as far as them being reassured of God's power. And, and, and again, that's being reinforced by telling them not to question it or doubt it, which kind of puts, you know, it makes it dangerous. It makes it dangerous because, you know, I tell you guys, question everything. And see, and that's how these codependent relationships are built in the black community, but specifically the black Christian church, because when they tell you not to question God or not to doubt anything, and if they have any questions or or, or um, qualms or what have you to bring it to the pastor, that helps to build up that very dangerous codependent relationship. And basically they end up going to the pastor for everything. You know, there are pastors that are committing suicide all over this country. There are pastors that have to take their sabbaticals and step down and step away because they feel that they are empty and that they have nothing to give the people. And, you know, they go to the pastor to pray for them and to help them deal with, in this article, as it says here, it says they expect the pastor to help them cope with joblessness, poverty, and discrimination by transforming their despair into hope. Black theology needs to provide the content and method for changing the social, economic, and political obstacles for blacks. So I know some of you are like, well, Kim, you know, you are not anti-church. You're not anti- well, you're not anti-black church. You're not anti-black Christianity. And, again, I've explained my reasons for that. And the reason for that is, yet again, and I'll say it, I believe that, the black church is pretty much the last shield, the last vestige of hope for the black community in their shielding themselves away and being sheltered from the full brunt of white supremacy. And this is why I find it dangerous when you have people from these other communities coming in and trying to find that weak spot and and, and, and basically forging a path for people who do not mean us any good to come in and take further advantage of us. And they're taking advantage of you as well. And, you know, there's a lot more I can discuss about that, and I will, because like I said, 2020 is the year of I really don't give a fucking calling out names, and I'm telling what's happening. Because, hey, because I can So, yeah, so no, I am not anti-black church because being anti-black church, anti-black Christianity 
is basically, in my opinion, basically throwing the entire black community away or the majority of the black community. And I'm not going to do that. But I'm also going to call out the people that are coming into the community and trying to harm them. And there are a lot of them out here. You know, you have lots in the black conscious community. You know, be careful with some of these people coming in talking about reparations. You know, um, again, and even with these, some of these churches, it's nothing but a business. It's a business model. And, again, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a pyramid scheme. Only the people at the top are really going to receive the biggest payout. And you see the same thing. You saw the same thing with Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and, you know, even in Chicago with Lester Holt and, you know, a number of other people that are out there. And they are the first ones trying to usher black people to the microphone to say that they forgive white people when the white people have shot up the church, when the white people have come and shot you and killed you and chased your family off and taken the deed to your property and signed it over to themselves, and now they own the property. You know, the ones that are putting you in for-profit prisons and making money off of your misery, the stocks that are being traded. You know, some of these systems have stocks. There are stocks for the for-profit prisons being traded on the market as we speak. So, you know, some people are like, Kim, you're so angry. No, I'm not angry. I just have a very healthy dose of distrust when it comes to white people because they have shown you who they are. I fucking believe them, and you need to start believing them too. And so in this article here, just go on to read, and right here it's talking about, you know, the masses of black people beginning to understand and practice black theology. And, again, you know, you can substitute that word theology for a number of other things. You know, so, you know, right here you're talking about black theology for people that are secular, you know, black, you know, liberation, you know, black freedom, however you want to, you know, you can put your own words to however it applies to you and what you're doing. But it's talking here, it says, this cannot help without the direct involvement of black preachers and parishioners, and that is true. Even during the civil rights movement of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they, the black churches, would allow the civil rights, you know, activists and the conscious activists to meet in their churches because that was the only place that they could meet without having the damn police force coming down on top of them and, and, and basically arresting everyone. So many churches allowed them to, to meet there and to strategize and to, you know, plan. And But many of the churches were not part of it. They wanted no parts of it because they felt as though it would undermine their authority, it would undermine what the Bible has taught them. That's what they were saying. But it all boils down to the fact that they were afraid. They tell their parishioners to not be afraid. There's a scripture about that, you know, whom shall I be afraid? But they themselves were afraid, which is why when, you know, we had this latest movement with the Black Lives Matter and other social movements that were out there, why, you know, people were saying, where is the black church? The black church was doing exactly what they were doing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Only a small percentage of them were out there marching and protesting and all of those things. So what they did during BLM, you know, was pretty much the same thing. 
Because you have to remember, in many of these black churches, let's just the black and brown churches, let's just be honest, it's a, it's a dynasty. They pass it down to their children, and then it goes to their children's children. You know, it's, it's a business. And so um, just go on out and, you know, take a look at that article. And it's another article that I want to run by you as well. This right here is over in the New York Times. Whoops, hold on a second. Let me... Um, and this was written by Eddie Glaude, Jr., right? And the title is Colin – oh, I'm sorry. It was not written by Eddie Glaude, Jr. This was written by Samuel G. Friedman. Again, the author is Samuel G. Friedman. And the title of this article is Call and Response on the State of the Black Church. Again, Call and Response on the State of the Black Church. This was written in April 2010, April 16, 2010. And it was talking about an article that Eddie Glaude had written. And basically the title of the article is The Black Church is Dead. And I want you to go and read that article as well, The Black Church is Dead. And that's on the Huffington Post. And so it was talking about here um, about basically how black churches, especially now, how many of them are very conservative politically. And in general, black people tend to be conservative. But in black churches, you know, they're they're more conservative than what many people realize, right? Which is why the election of 45 was so dangerous because he received 13% of the black male vote. And you see these black pastors that are out here, you know, shucking and jiving, skinning and grinning for 45 because there's some money in it for them. And now that they have Paula White over basically the faith-based initiative, they renamed it again. But basically she's going to be able to dole out the money to different, you know, Christian organizations of her of her choice. And it was interesting because a lot of the black pastors were very angry with Paula White because they felt betrayed, you know, because they had opened up their doors, you know, introduced her to the black community, held her up, supported her, even with all of that fuckery that was taking place without, basically with the Without Walls Church that her and her husband co-pastored, and then when she took over that other church, New Destiny. So, again, this is a good article. You know, he's talking in that particular article that Eddie Glaude wrote, he's talking about the conservatism of the church. And basically right here it says the the election of Barack Obama, a black Christian as president, has complicated, if not blunted, the black church's traditional role of confronting the establishment, speaking truth to power. Now, there is some truth to that, but there is a lot left out of there because they're speaking truth to power only only to a certain degree because many of the black churches do not necessarily want to rock the boat. Rock the boat. And then you have pastors that are coming out that have no problem rocking the boat you know, there's a lot of chitter-chatter about them. You know, they're ostracized to a certain degree. There have been some pastors that have lost their credentials because they were kicked out of one particular denomination. 
you know, this has been happening for a long time. In this article here, it talks about Malcolm X ridiculing Christianity as the white man's religion, but somewhat because they're able to manipulate Christianity. Because, again, Christianity teaches you forgiveness, and, and they, they emphasize that forgiveness because, again, this is a way for them to not be held accountable, white people to not be held accountable for the violence and harm that they inflict on black and brown bodies. And that's why they're afraid of Islam, because Islam teaches justice. And if you go and you read the historical accounts of basically of, of um, villages and, you know, different smaller countries that basically were not colonized, the reason why many of them were not colonized is because when the white people showed up to colonize them, they had to be, you know, they had to basically surprise them and be like triple crazy. What did James Brown say? I don't know karate, but I know crazy. Crazy has driven a lot of these white missionaries out of these countries because they were there to give them the Bible and to stick them up with the gun and take all of their resources and people and, you know, and humans' bodies if they wanted them. But the only way they were overcome was to for those people to give them the element of surprise and to fight back and fight back in non-traditional ways. You know, and that's basically what's going to have to happen in this country because, you know, we've been in this corner for a long time. We've been back into this corner for a long time. We are not in good shape, and we have no friends out there. None. So you're either going to have to continue running or you're going to have to stand your ground and fight back. And that's what they're afraid of. And that's why they do not want you looking at the world or your worldview or even your Christian ideology. They don't. They do not want you looking at that through the lens of critical race theory. It's extremely important that you understand that because again, white Christianity, Christianity is based on fear, oppression, and subjugation, which is control. Which is why they treat their animals better than they treat black or brown bodies because they control them. They tell them what they to do, and they do it. And when you resist and not allow them to run your life, to run your community, I've heard white people say to black people, you don't know what's good for you, as they try to dictate to us what we could and could not do, what we should and should not have, where we should and should not be. You know, and then they want to say go back to Africa and get angry when you have a retort to that. So anyway, um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, and I'm talking about the church, but, you know, it's not only these black pastors and black Christians, but, I mean, even a lot of these black academics and black public intellectuals, same problem, same problem, you know, some of them being paid by wealthy white donors, by wealthy white schools, 
by, you know, wealthy white organizations to come out here and to try to find a way to corral you into whatever it is, whatever pasture they're trying to put you in, it is their job to corral you and and send you that way, which is why you hear me talking about the Judas goat. It's important that you understand this because many of these people, they're thinking with their pocketbooks. They're thinking about what they can get out of it, whether it's celebrity, power, money, sex, all of that, and some. And it's important that you understand how you're being used and in many cases misguided and misinformed. So, you know, with that, I think I'm going to leave you. But, you know, I gave you four really good articles, and I didn't really get into this last one really a lot. But you can read, you know, um, one of the critiques from this one person was saying that, you know, theologians and philosophers like Eddie Glott don't go to black churches. And that's the same argument that they're going to use if you're a humanist or an atheist or a free thinker or what have you, agnostic. You don't go to church. So they're going to try to dismiss your arguments. You need to be aware of that. You need to be, you know, understand what's happening. And then, again, they they describe this as like a warlike situation, which there's a lot of accuracy to that. But they say here they haven't been out in the field. And unless you're in the field, you can't see what's happening. Now, that's true. That is absolutely true. But a lot of these, you know, pastors and ministers and preachers, they haven't been out in the field either. Their field is their congregation. Very few of them actually go out into the community, but I've been seeing that grow over the last couple of decades. And so I'm happy to see that. But I need for you all to understand is that the same arguments that white people use on black people, black people use on other black people. You know, and it's important that you understand this, that you understand, you know, where they're coming from. You need to know what they're going to get out of the situation. And... um we just need to shield ourselves and be careful as to who you follow because not all of them have your best interest in mind. And some of those people look like you. So go out, read those articles. Like I said, this one here is Call and Response on the State of the Black Church. It was written by Samuel G. Friedman. Again, call and response on the state of the black church, Samuel Friedman. And then they referenced um, an article by Eddie Glaude, which is titled, The Black Church is Dead, right? And when I talk about the black church, you know, I talk about what they're doing for the community, some of the services that are offered through the black church. Now, I want you to understand, not all black churches are doing that. Not all black churches, and this is what they mean by being in the field, or as I would interpret it, right, my comprehension of it, being in the field, feeding the people, you know, getting out there, clothing the people, helping them to find resources, 
you know, so that they can maintain a roof over their head. Help them to find the resources and the people to get their children in daycare or to get them some services that they need. And, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Because, again, when you have some of these black folks out here that are basically trying to do away with the black church, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, maim and kill and hurt and harm the black community, it's because it's because there's something in it that they want. In a lot of cases, it's validation and a few crumbs from some white folks that sent them in. Be aware. Pay attention. And so I think I have pontificated enough today. I will be putting these out there on the Reddit. And, again, it's Reddit. Let me see here. Reddit.com slash r slash black free thinkers, one word with an S at the end. So anyway, Happy New Year. You guys, I missed you. We're going to be doing it again this year. I'm going to be launching a new podcast this year as well. So I think I told you all that last year, but I just wanted to remind you um, I'm starting to do even more in-depth research for my documentary. I'm waiting on this one particular corporation to release the camera that I want. I mean, I have camera, but the one that I really, 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 really want is (laughs) it should have come out last year, but, you know, we have our fingers crossed for this year. So anyway, hey, this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Question everything. We are black free thinkers, but we are not the Kanye and Candace old kind. Have a good weekend, y'all. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.